0: He is not only a former winner of the Australian Scrabble Championship. Um, in 2005, he also placed third in the Magic the Gathering uh, Australian National Championship and represented Australia in the World Championship. Um, and while that's pretty impressive already, that's not why he's here on the show today. I invited him to the show because he's also a fellow game designer. Um, he's a former Magic the Gathering external developer and the designer of Redlands, one of the hottest games currently on Kickstarter. Um, at the time we speak, the game has reached almost 240,000 uh, euros on Kickstarter, and I'm pretty confident that this number will go up over the next couple of days. So I'm very happy to, um, to have him on board for today's show. Uh, so please welcome with me Daniel Pichnik, the designer of Redlands. Uh, welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks, Marvin. Thanks for having me. So... Before we start talking about the entire design process of Redlands, um, could you please uh, introduce yourself and tell our listeners how, yeah, how your journey as a as a game designer started, and um, yeah, where your motivation uh, for designing games uh, comes from? Yes,
1: so I'm Daniel Peachnik. I'm a I'm a uh, an investor, a tournament Scrabble player, former national champion, and obviously a very avid board game player. I've been playing board games for a long time. I played magic since I was, since almost the beginning. I like, um, I'm just a kind of creative person and I like board games. And like many people, I just can't resist creating something of my own. Now that's a, uh, if you want to do it seriously, it's a very big project and it's a really interesting project. And that's why I like board game design because it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Board game design sits at the intersection of logic and psychology, and you can't really work it out. And I don't think there's anyone in the world who's a really good board game designer yet.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. So let me let me ask you, why do you think there is no, no good board game designer out there yet? That's an interesting thing to dive into.
1: I think we're just at the beginning of this journey, and so much stuff has been learned already quickly. If you go back 20 years, there's very little that's in the way of good board games. Uh, the, first, the first few board games were appearing and so much has been learned. And I feel like people are learning things all the time. And we'll be able to look back in decades to come at what we have now and realize that those were good games, but there was so much more to come because it is so complex and people are discovering new things. I think we're just at the start of this venture and it will be clear how far we will have come in maybe 25 years from now.
0: Oh, that's that's a very interesting viewpoint because I already know a lot of people who say, um, don't start to design a board game or a card game. The market is already very saturated. Um, there are so many new games coming out uh, every, every day or every month. Um, there is nothing more to explore for you as a designer so, um, when I understand you correctly, you say we are just in the beginning, and there will be, uh, yeah, there's much more design space to be explored by by new game designers. Yeah, I
1: think um, there's going to come a time, I think, in society in the future where people spend a lot more time playing games, play especially, and there will there will be board games, even if they're significantly computerized by them, which I think they will be. They'll still clearly be the descendants of today's board games. They'll be strategy games not based on physical dexterity and I think that's where we're going and when more people get into it I think it will really start increasing and there's so much there's so much to be learned I'm learning stuff all the time and the quality of games even now is going up even just over five years ago look at the board game geek ratings of games they just keep going up and up not just in terms of the quality of the presentation but in terms of the quality of the strategy. And as games get better, more people come along. Uh, And there's a a lot of the, the improvement also is stuff under the hood. It's not necessarily fancy new ideas or novel things that no one's seen before. It's often just an ability to get into the tiny, tiny details of board game design and understand them because that's where a lot of my work is. Coming up with an interesting idea is relatively easy and going down into the small, small details of a game to make it actually good, which I've spent a lot of time on with Radlands, is something really, really difficult. I've got a lot of good ideas, but I haven't been able to execute a lot of them. So the hard bit is the very, very small details. Yes,
0: I absolutely agree. Since I'm designing my own game right now, which will also be uh, going um, to Kickstarter this year, um, so I can absolutely agree to that, um and when I was starting out as a game designer, I was more uh looking at it from the player perspective, so I was playing magic gathering a lot and other strategy card games, and i thought well i i can I can do that, I can create these kind of cards and uh, maybe come up with the rules around it um and I can have a a creative idea around a new, uh, I don't know, theme or some kind of new mechanic, but when you start sitting down and um, uh, design your your own game, it uh, it is actually not that easy, and there is no, I would say, there is no blueprint out there how to do it. So my goal always was to um, to try to learn from from other game designers by yeah, talking to them on the podcast here or reading about how they're uh, about their process, but. <laughs> I have to agree that I have not seen some kind of uh, of blueprint so the the game design process is in my eyes it is not it is not solved it's it's highly um, highly um, individual um, depending on your game so you everyone has to go through that uh, through the journey um, him or herself from my perspective
1: Yes you're definitely right it is a long journey and you can't see that it's a journey at the start Many people I see are designing their first board game, and I can look at them as I looked back on my earlier design. When I first started designing, I thought, well, I play lots of games. I know a lot about games. I'm a smart person. I'll design a game and get it published. And it's not that I was wrong about the things I was doing and the choices I was making in my games. It was more an error of omission. There was just so much stuff I didn't know about and that's the thing that was missing from my game. So when I look at other people's games, you can see that they're at an earlier stage. They, many people just haven't got the, the idea of reducing complexity or that game design is a constant trade-off between gameplay depth and complexity. There are so many errors that I made early on. And now that I look back at my earlier games, I can see that they really weren't publishable and that I really wasn't that good but these are not things that someone can really tell you because if they tell you that something has been left out or that there's an omission, you can't see it and you just imagine. Like I've always imagined that my games were publishable and earlier on they weren't publishable and if I want to get them published now, I'm going to have to go back and do a lot of work on them. So it really is a journey and you don't know how good you are as a game designer. Everyone thinks they're good, including me when I wasn't good. The only way you can really find out is by getting published. And that's why I always said, look, unless I have a published game, I don't know how good I am. I think I'm good. But all these other people, they think they're good too. But I can see that there are problems with their games. And everyone thinks their game is going to get published. And it's a hard lesson to learn. That, and it's a lesson that will be told to you by publishers. You'll think your game is fantastic. You'll surround yourself with people who you think like it. And then you go to a publisher and they'll go, no. And you won't work it out. But you will begin to suspect that there's something wrong with your game. And then you go off and make other games. And eventually you will learn and you become a good enough designer that a publisher wants to publish your game. And until you have a published game, you really don't know how good of a designer you are. And even then, there's a big difference between a publishable game and a really good game. So I'm waiting. To see how Radlands does, because I genuinely don't know how good a designer I am. I can see I can see my flaws better than I used to be able to. But that's the way it goes, and it's a, it's there's a lot of hard lessons in there for people to learn, because as you know, only a very very small fraction of games get published. But everyone assumes that their game is going to be the one to get published, and. It's hard to compare yourself to someone else. People don't like that. The best way is to think, not, not if you were competing against a really good designer, but imagine you are competing, you've got your first game and you want to get it published. Imagine you're not competing against someone else, but you're competing against yourself from the future, and yourself from the future has made 20 different games to some stage, and that person's competing against you. Isn't that person just going to, to wallop you and easily get their game published over yours? Because that's the way it works. It's not people's first games that in general are getting published. My game is my 17th game. It took me that long to make a game that was worth getting published. My previous games, all kinds of good ideas, they just weren't good enough to get published. And so until you have that published game, you you haven't completed this first step of the journey.
0: Oh, there's... Uh... So much wisdom in what you said, and um, there are many many aspects of uh, what you just said that I I want to dive deeper into. Um, But let me start with the first one. So um, you mentioned that you have created, let's say, sixteen games before you came up with Redlands. So um, that's that's quite a lot of games, Um, and I could totally see people getting frustrated um, in that process because the games were probably not that fun that they that they expected or they uh, publish the publishers uh, m- maybe that no i don't uh, I, I cannot publish that because of uh, abc um, so what kept up your motivation to to move forward in that period while you created your first 16 games that um, as yourself said were not publishable?
1: so i tend to take projects pretty seriously in any kind of project um, the kind of success curve of anything you do is an exponential upward curve. And for the first year or two, or maybe three, you'll achieve nothing. You'll just learn. This could be a business, it could be, uh, could be writing books. But after that, you'll start to get into a significant upward curve. And I know this from previous projects. Some people just flip from one project to the next. But if you can force yourself and find ways to make yourself stick with things, then you can be successful because nothing is successful at first because you're competing with all the other people with experience as well. And this is what's so important about designing board games. Many of my earlier board games, they, they failed for reasons I couldn't understand. They weren't fun. There was something wrong with them. And if you design only a small number of board games, you will run into these pitfalls. I can see some of the pitfalls now that I ran into, because I look back and I think, oh, that, that mistake... I I had no idea that mistake existed back then. And on the few games that dodged the pitfalls, it's not because I understood where the pitfalls were. I just got lucky. And when I look back now, I can see, okay, that's why that game was good. But at the start, I couldn't. And the earlier games that you get published and that you design, you're going to have to be lucky because many of them will fall into pitfalls you just don't understand and you will understand later which is why it's extremely important to design lots and lots of games because that's what it takes.
0: And do you have some kind of advice for for newer and aspiring game designers um how they can identify those those pitfalls because it's it's very hard to see them yourself when you when you are um hyped and in the game design process and you think your game is fun. So how can you as a probably a newer game designer, identify that parts of your game aren't fun. And um, yeah, how do you do that?
1: I find that I found that I couldn't. I would play the game and it wasn't fun. It was... I play other people's games, other people's prototypes, and I say, that's not fun. These days I can probably identify what it is. But earlier on, I just couldn't. It's like my game's sensible. I've made logical decisions. It's... Um, It should be fun, but it's not. And that's what you tend to get. You tend to get an end result and you can't really peer back into the machine and understand why it wasn't fun. So you just have to make more games. And I think it's really important that you gain this skill, which is why it's important to play a lot of other people's games. And every time you play a game, you need to start picking it apart and thinking, why wasn't that game fun? Because that's not something anyone can teach you. But every time you play someone's prototype or even a published game, you should be thinking about it and trying to deconstruct it. Because you can't pick apart game design because it's too complex. But you can start putting together your own general rules and you can come to your own understanding of board game design.
0: That's very, very interesting. So um, maybe I think it makes sense to um, to talk a little bit about uh, Redlands. So um, because if, if we reference your game design process and stuff like that, we will probably, to some degree, um, talk about the things you decided for Redlands as well. So why, why don't you um, introduce Redlands and explain the the listeners what the game is actually about and um, what kind of mechanics are in the game and stuff like that?
1: So Redlands is a sort of a poke, post-apocalyptic uh, two-player strategy card game. You have three camps. Uh, which you 're trying to defend and which give you various abilities, and in front of those you put people, and these people have all kinds of abilities, and you fight against the opponent 's people and you try <clears throat> and you try and break through and destroy their camps that 's just sort of the basic idea of the game, but what it is in reality is it 's a game about combos it 's not like a game like Magic the Gathering, which is more of a game about numbers where it 's about creature size and knocking the opponent down from 20 life to zero life. This is a game about the the people in the game actually all have exactly the same level of health, if you want to call it. They're either upright, which means they're healthy, or they're sideways, which means they're damaged. This is not a game about numbers. This is a game about every piece in this game is a combo piece, and it's just given to you, and you can see what you want to do with it. There's the... Unlike, say, a game of Magic, where you play lands each turn and they just pay for your other stuff, the camps in Radlands you choose three camps at the start of the game out of six, and these provide an ongoing ability, each of them. They provide an ability you can use any time you like, and these will really shape how the game plays out. Some will be aggressive and some will be defensive, but they'll have form combinations with each other. And this is the thing. A single camp, you'll play it many times, but you'll play it with different combinations of other camps, which makes every game really different. And the, the people in the game, like um, you take something... So the most common ability is just damage. It's just to turn one of the other opponent's cards sideways. Now, you can only hit their people at the front, so you've got to decide which are your important people and which are your unimportant people and which of your camps are important that you want to put people in front of them. So take something like um, Rescue Team, for instance. Rescue Team is a person, but it can return one of your other people to your hand each turn. You could return someone who's injured to your hand and then play them again. Now, every card in the game, you can also discard it for a junk ability, which is like a free icon in the corner of the card. You can pick something up off the table and then throw it away as that. You can, I mean, you can pick the, uh, the Rescue Team themselves up. The opponent could have played an event that's about to blow away all your stuff. Or you could have. And you can use the rescue team to pick your people up and save them. Rescue team is just sort of one of many combo pieces that this game has. I mean, if I had two decks of magic, that would be interesting. That would keep me interested for a while. But the idea of this game is that there are so many combos in there in a small box that the games are just never the same. Even if there weren't three different camps each time that you could use This box has been designed to have a game in it that you can just play endlessly. That is the objective of this design. It's not a game where you have to keep buying new stuff or there's a million bits. It's just a little box that people will be playing for years. Because we've been playing it for years and we're still really enjoying
0: it. Yeah, that's very interesting. That goes a bit into the direction of the game that I'm going to publish this year as well. Um, When it comes to being a a box game having a lot of combinations in there and playing more or less from from one deck um, and not having to build your own decks before you start playing, for example. So, was there anything in the starting point? Was there anything um, that you that you considered from Magic: The Gathering and your experience with the game um, that you wanted to make different in the game? for for Redlands. So was there any specific, let's say, flaws in magic or aspects of magic that you didn't want to have in Redlands?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. So the game is nothing like magic, but magic is so prevalent and so dominant sort of in this card game area that it's useful to compare a game to magic. I mean, there are a million magic knockoffs that are basically magic with small modifications. With this, I wanted to say, what is magic achieving and how can I achieve it in a different way? Magic has a combat system where you have your own people and they um, you, sorry, you have your own creatures and they will attack the opponent and the opponent will choose what to defend with. But I didn't want that. I didn't think that was necessary. It, the kind of game of magic I like is one where you have like a little team of guys and they've all got their own little abilities and powers and they can all help each other out. And you get this little tricky little sort of matrix of possibilities and a really skilled player can do interesting stuff with that. That's the, the times when magic was like that was when I sort of did the best because that's when I enjoyed it most. And another thing about magic is that other than the form factor, which I've described, I I felt like the game didn't need to be that complicated. Magic's got a lot of rules and a lot of stuff and it wasn't necessary to have all that stuff now magic obviously came around in 1993 so they didn't know a lot of the stuff back then so in a way everyone these days is building on the shoulders of giants but i just wanted to make a game that was small and it was it wasn't numerical like magic was and it didn't it didn't rely on having a huge number of cards and everything in the game had to serve a really important purpose like In Magic, many times you just draw a card and it's not something you need, it's a land, and you put it on the table. Huge numbers of the cards in Magic don't do anything. And then you might have four copies of other cards. And Magic's not designed to be small. It's designed to be a good game, but not in a small form factor. Whereas what I've done here is I've thought everything in the game needs to do something really interesting. There's never, in Radlands. There's, there's never a turn where you play the right move. In many other games, it's like we you have your options and then you choose the right one, and an inferior player would choose the wrong one. In Radlands, you have three water to spend each turn, and that's it. But there's so many different ways you can spend that water. You've got your three camps, each of which have their own abilities, probably costing one or two water. You can put out new people. But each of those people can also be junked to use its junk ability. You can't just sit there and hoard all your cards in your hand because your opponent will, will rip through you. This is a game about options and combinations, which is what I personally really like. And as it turns out, the game I've made really is about that and other people who've played it really like it as well because of because of how many options there are. That The first turn of the game, we could have a discussion for 10 minutes about what the right move would be. There is never a case in this game where you're out of options. And that means that when people lose, they don't say, well, I, I, I was unlucky. Because you were just provided so many choices every turn. People just never are even inclined to say, well, I was unlucky. Because every turn, I mean, if you want a new card, you can just pay two water and draw a new one. You don't like your cards, just junk them. Uh, you don't even have to have any cards in your hand. You've got your three camps there. And the events, which I haven't talked about, the events have really powerful effects, but they're delayed. You can't just go, well, I've got this thing that kills everyone on the table. Boom, everything's gone. That's less skillful. The events in my game have timers on them, so they will go off at some point in the future. So if someone plays Radiation, which is going to damage everyone on the table, what are you going to do about that? That's only got a timer of one. On your turn, you're going to have a... One turn before everything gets damaged, and obviously everything that's already damaged gets destroyed, all the people that is. You can sit, many people would say, Well, obviously, I'm just not going to play any new people. But a skilled player knows that you can't just do that because the opponent will just tear through you on their following turn. This is a really aggressive game where things happen fast. The game goes straight to the mid game and stays there as sort of a, a brutal cliffhanger. The whole time. And there's never a point where you can just sit there and amass resource and say, well, I've got more stuff than you. I'm probably going to win. Because the game can turn around instantly. Those events, they can just completely change the game. So when you have an advantage, you really need to start tearing into the opponent's camps and maybe winning. Because until their last camp is destroyed, they can absolutely come back and often do. You've never won this game until the end.
0: Yeah, that sounds very interesting. And while I was reading the rules of the game, I... Also got really interested in playing it, so um, I think there are a lot of interesting aspects that you just mentioned, and um, yeah, let's dive a little bit deeper into those. Um, let's first start with maybe the let's say the time, the timing aspect of the game, the um, the events that you mentioned that all come out with a um, with a timer on them. So as I understood from the rules, they can um, either go off in Three turns, two turns, one turns, or maybe there are some already um, have zero timers on them when they come into the into the into the game and um, go off immediately. So that reminded me a little bit on um, the sagas in Magic, how they are uh, kind of card type that they have in the game um, since a few sets, I think. And um, I talked about them in the last episode of the show because I found it interesting how in the last set how magic combined the the visible information on cards like sagas which is pretty much in your face they they tell the card tells you what your opponent is going to do in the next two or three turns so you 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 can plan take that into consideration as an opponent um, and plan your turn ahead how you want to react on that so i really like that and um, then you have also this kind of hidden information in in the game in magic for example um and also in 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 redlands um, with a lot of uh, i don't know kind of actions that the opponent can do uh, which you do not know uh, know about as an opponent you don't know what kind of um, um of the person the, the opponent will play what kind of person um they are going to to activate what kind of new events they will play so how do how do you um how important do you think is the, um, uh, the interplay between this visible information? So giving the opponent kind of uh, a little heads up of what you're going to do in the next couple of turns. Um, interplay with the kind of hidden information that he doesn't know. What does it do for a game? And did you plan to, to implement those aspects into your game um, specifically?
1: So I think if you have a lot of visible information in your game, the players need to take it in. And they can strategize on it. And this is going to make your game much more strategic. Like a game of chess, you can see exactly what's going on. There's no hidden information. And your ability to win at chess is simply based on your ability to calculate these things ahead. Another example is something like Scrabble. Um, Scrabble, there's, there is hidden information. There's, you know, you don't know what letters the opponent has. You don't know what letters you're going to draw out of the bag but you do have some information. You can see what's on the board and you can see what you've got. That creates a process where you're more intuiting. It's less about working things out and it's about using your intuition of what's good and what's bad. And intuition in general, I think is something that I like to do more than calculation. So I think a game can be strategic up to a point, but Beyond that, you do want to have some kind of hidden information or something unknown. And these events do factor into that. If the opponent has events that they can just play and you don't know whether they've got them and they blow everything up, that makes the game more intuitive and I think in this case less strategic. And I think it would make it maybe in that case too intuitive and maybe a bit random. So, But when you get those events and you put a timer on them, it says to the opponent, this event is coming and you can't really stop it, what are you going to do? It's not like in Magic where you go, does the opponent have something or not? And you play your card and see, does your creature get blown up or not? So in this case, it is quite a strategic game, and I think it's best as a strategic game, but you don't know what's in the opponent's hand, and that's really the only source of randomness or what's unknown. This makes it a game that once you start going towards that end, the strategic end, you have a game that probably some people are not going to like strategic games. So if you're just someone who likes to um, play around and have a bit of fun and not think too deeply, I'm not sure I can recommend this game to you because there are other fun games. But if you're like someone who likes to think a bit, not sit there for five minutes mulling over every possibility but something that gives you options and has you have the ability to think for a while but not too long because there is a bit of unknown that's what i've tried to do here
0: yeah and um yeah it looks really promising and um from the complexity level i would I would say it is uh, something that really speaks to me and probably uh, a, lot of my, uh, a lot of the people in my audience as uh, I know that they are also um, the, the, the players of uh, yeah, card games like Magic the Gathering or so. So um, I think you should definitely check Redlands out. And when you go to the, to the Kickstarter site, for example, you see that the game is also described as being elegant. Yes. And that's also an aspect that we uh, tackled quite a bit here on the podcast because I think uh, elegant game design is uh, yeah one of the goals that you should have as a game designer. So maybe you can explain a little bit what elegant game design means means for you and which aspects of Redland are um, yeah most elegant for you.
1: So elegance is just where all the pieces are simple. And... The idea is that you want emergent complexity where you have simple pieces, like in chess, coming together to make a very complex strategic environment. What that means is that, in my opinion, game design is about 50% game design and 50% reducing complexity. It, you're not competing against other games of just every, every other game. You're only competing against other games of the same complexity. So if you can make like a, a medium-light game, that still has a lot of replay has a lot of replayability and a lot of strategy in there despite appealing to everyone that's that's a real achievement so in games I'm constantly trying to remove things essentially you want a core in the game which is the central concept and you want to remove as much other stuff as possible you just want minimal scaffolding around that like take Dominion that you know a very successful deck building card game That deck-building part was originally part of a larger game. And if that was the way it ended up being, I don't think many people would have liked it. But because it was boiled down to just that core, that's why it was good. The important thing always in design, as far as I'm concerned, is not just making your game better, but improving its depth-to-complexity ratio, which means not just adding stuff in, but removing things that aren't worth it. You might think, Well, it seems silly to remove something from my game that actually adds adds gameplay. But if it's adding a significant amount of complexity and requires significant rules, you should remove it. And then you should re-spend that complexity to add something else to the game, which does really add a lot. So when I design games, if I'm going to add a rule, I want to make sure that there's a lot of stuff. If I add a new icon to the game, the same thing applies. If I'm going to get some text and make it into an icon, which I'm going to have to explain to people, I want to use that icon in a lot of places. If something exists in my game, I want to have a lot of it or none. And this idea of elegance as well, it makes your game about something, about something really clear. Like when you play a game of chess, it's about one activity. It's not about a variety of activities like some of these Euro games which have got a zillion areas of the board and you're doing all kinds of different things. You don't, you're not making a game that appeals to everyone and every kind of enjoyment. Your game should target specifically one single activity that some people are going to love. And the rest of your game is just scaffolding around that. And you should remove all the complexity you can. And that might mean, I think in many cases, I've seen people with very interesting ideas. But they're not removing that stuff. They've got some really interesting idea, but they're putting it as the core of some epic game. I say... You've got a really interesting idea there. Just get rid of all this other stuff. But by then it's often far too late and they're sort of locked into this. And that's the thing I would say to people. Your typical, my typical game weight is like medium light. Virtually everything I've ever come up with or ever wanted to do has been medium light, which means you can learn the rules in a few minutes and the playtime's about half an hour because that's all I really need. You can't design really light games because it's too easy to copy someone else by accident. It's too easy. It's it's just too hard to come up with something. You don't have the, the the design space, enough design space, if you're designing a game that's really light, to make something good. But if you're using medium weight, there's just so many options. I would never design a game above medium weight. It's Medium light is where it is. But for your first game, obviously, design something much lighter than... Than medium light but medium light it gives me all the space like in this game i it's hard for me to design more cards because i've used my design space so well this game has relatively simple rules and i've created almost every card i can think of that's good that would be fun to play within those rules and that's a good sign that your game isn't too complex because if you could get your game and you could design a million more cards your design space is probably too big because you've got one too many rules in there and you can make it simpler and more focused and that's probably the direction you should go because this applies to many of my games i can't it's going to be very difficult to make more cards to radlands i could expand it and add extra rules but with something simple I, i have managed to make something that achieves its purpose which was getting all these giant games and stuffing them into a little box i didn't think it was necessarily possible but it seems to
0: have worked They're very interesting so what um, what I consider as elegant game design is it often has to do with uh, combining certain aspects of your game for example combining um, two different game mechanics into one so that they that uh, that I don't know maybe both mechanics become better in that way or maybe they make another mechanic unnecessary And it it feels just great if you change something about your game and um, one, I don't know, let's say attribute on a card or one mechanic becomes unnecessary. That just feels very good to get rid of that uh, extra clutter in your game. Um, but it can also be very, very hard to kill something in the game that adds complexity, but you are really attached to it as a game designer because, yeah. uh, I mean, you 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 came up with it, you designed cards for it, and um, you, you played with it, and you liked it, and it actually added something to the game. So reducing stuff can be very, very hard. And um, do you think that this um, sometimes games have uh, let's say secondary effects also in in your example in the game Redlands, you can um, you you describe that you can discard cards for a secondary effect um and i think this is something that um that helps to create a game that is um that is elegant because uh, you could easily have some kind of uh Additional cards that have this effect, and this would have probably created a little bit of clutter in your game um, but by adding this discard effect on your already existing cards, um you do not need extra components for that for those effects. so do you think that kind of uh, uh, secondary effect or multiple application scenarios for for single cards or um, attributes of your game um, are relevant? or a good way to perceive uh, or to achieve elegance? Um,
1: I'm not sure that there are a way to achieve elegance. I think there are a way to achieve more options. Because I think there's an issue with many games, which is that you feel like you're building a ship in a bottle. There's so many things you can that can be done in the game, but you just can't do them. This is why I like um, a lot of worker placement games, because you have direct access to a lot of the game. Because there's just spaces on the board and you can just choose any of them. And I would contrast that with a lot of spatial movement games where it's like your access to the game is really restricted. A good example of good access is um, Race for the Galaxy, where you're just using cards. Actually, it's kind of similar to what I'm using with uh, cards have a secondary effect, where you're throwing away cards as a cost to pay for things, pay for other cards. And then when you get resources you're actually just getting more cards you have access to so much of the game and in many games you're sitting there with a couple of options and there's this whole game there but you can do very little choices are really important and what's important about choices is now i apply this specifically to cards and this applies to other games as well every card you get you should sometimes want to play it and sometimes not want to play it if there's anything in your game that you would always do then it shouldn't be in there. I'll talk about another, another game that I did, I've, I've been working on that's one of my things. There was a, a card you could draw which is like uh, free money or something. You draw it and you play it and you get a dollar. The thing is you get this card and you just play it and you get a dollar. You'll immediately play it and there's no ways in which you will play it. So I replaced that with another card called Kidney Donation. Now Kidney Donation, as well as being amusing, it gives you $2, but you lose two health. This is a much, much more interesting card. It's not as good, obviously, as just getting a free dollar. But it means that this is not something you always want to play. You know, you're better off having two health than $2. But it gives you this choice, and it's suddenly a much more interesting card. Cards should have context. What You shouldn't draw a card and go, oh, that's the correct way to play that card. I'll just do that. Every time you draw a card in a game, It should be, you should want to reevaluate it. It should vary based on the state of the game. And the the evaluation of the card for the player shouldn't be simple. It shouldn't just be like, you play this card if you're losing, but you don't play it if you're winning. It also shouldn't be, well, if the game's going to go on for a long time, you play it, and if it's not going to go on for a long time, you don't play it. Like a card that says, gain one wood or something. That's boring, but if you say, gain one wood for every tree you've got, That's really interesting. Every card should have a context and it should play differently each time you use it.
0: What do you think of... uh let's say, dead cards, because you're, the example of the kidney donation that you just made, let's say you have a board state where the player has only two life left or so. That card would be pretty much unplayable for, for, that, uh, for that player, because otherwise he would kill it himself. Um, so do you think those kind of cards are okay for a game um, that are in some scenarios are unplayable and in other scenarios might be very strong? So very situational cards, or do you think there always needs to be some kind of secondary effect so that the player, for example, could discard the card to get, um, I don't know, to get one one resource or so?
1: Um, It's important that in the long run, you need to have, most of your cards need to be not situational. It's okay to have some situational cards in your game, but there's another problem where, which I've had in other games, where you draw your hand of cards. And they're all complex and situational. People in general, they want they don't want a, a toolbox full of weird tools. They want a hammer and a screwdriver, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was an issue in Radlands earlier on, much earlier in the development. We'd play a whole lot of people with cool abilities, and it'd be like, I just actually want to destroy the opponent's stuff. And some of the events as well. You'd have all kinds of tricky things. So you can have cards that are situational, but as long as there's some way to use them eventually, or it doesn't matter if they're used or not, every card should have this sort of contextiness where it plays differently, and sometimes you play it and sometimes you won't. And this can apply to other abilities too. If there's anything in your game that you always or never do, that's an option, it should be removed.
0: Yes, I I agree. So um, you mentioned that... uh combos are a big part of uh, of redlands and maybe the most interesting part of it so when you when it comes to designing combos um, how, how, how do you start design combos is this something that naturally comes into into effect when you create cards and then afterwards see how they can combine be combined or do you sit down and think of Effects of the game that would be cool, and then distribute them into several pieces that then later have to come together. So, um, is there a way to really to really design combos into your game, or is this something that that comes uh, comes naturally? Um,
1: I think you just design the combo pieces, and if you've made a game that's sort of deep enough and interesting enough, which I think I just have, the design space of this game game is not big, then you can make enough combo pieces into it. It's all about that contextualness. As an example, I'll give you, um, I think I talked about this the other day. It's like the arcade It makes you a punk. You can make, use it to make a punk every turn. A punk is just like a weak dude, but he's useful for so many different things. Like a, uh, you could use a punk as defense and just put him in front of useful people. If you had the arcade, which makes your punks, and you had the uh, the reactor, you'd use your punks as a kind of defense to block up the board. And then when the opponent gets the upper hand, you just blow up your reactor and kill all their people and all yours, but you've only lost punks. If you had the arcade with, um, nest of spies, nest of spies says, if you've put two people into play this turn, you can do a damage, but the arcades already put one person in. So it makes it easier training camp. It flips your punks over so you can have the person on the other side, which is cool. Um, Another thing like blood bank, you can destroy one of your people and get a water from it. That would be another use for punks. But even then, um, all that, this is just one, one of the cards, and this is, it combos in so many other ways. By giving someone something that's useful, but not necessarily useful on its own. A punk doesn't do anything. But when you have all these other cards, I mean, you can use that. Uh, The rescue team I talked about earlier, return that punk to your hand. It flips over and turns into a card. It's all about giving people things and just letting them do what they want. I really like open sandbox games where people are just given all kinds of random resources and tools and options, and you just wait to see what they make of it. And we're still finding stuff. And it's like in some games... In some games, you can talk about your game. You can say, "Oh, this happened and that happened," and someone will, like someone from Roxy will come to me and say, "Oh, we had this game and we had this card and that card." And I was like, "Oh yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't considered that before." It's that kind of game where it's not like we've got some some bigger picture like a jigsaw puzzle and cut it up into pieces and put it in the box for you. It's like here's a whole lot of bits, and you can here we put them in the box and. You can make anything you like out of them, and that's what does happen, and that's what makes it so interesting.
0: That is something that uh, that is referred to in when it comes to stories, for example, that come up. This would be um, um, some kind of emergent storytelling, or so. Mm, interesting. Uh, and it when you when you uh, when you look at it from a from a combo perspective, one could say that this is some kind of emergent. Uh, combos that you didn't plan mm. for but they they are they are in there and people can explore them on their own and create their own kind of um board state situation that they will later remember but they are not scripted or so they're they are just uh uh in the game because uh because you created the little pieces so that this is this is possible
1: let me let me give you another i mean another one now that i'm looking at it um there are So many of these, but Parachute Base, for instance. Normally, you have to play your person and then you can use them the following turn. Parachute Base is a camp that really affects the game. It's really interesting. You can play your people and use them immediately using the Parachute Base, but then you have to damage them. So you can just fly your person onto the board and they do something, but they damage themselves. This is really interesting because every game... A game's rules should be broken by something. Every rule in the game should have some card or something that breaks that rule. If you're making your game properly and you're coming up with everything you could come up with, you want to have a card that breaks those rules. There's another card called Um Omen Clock, which just says you can push your events forward. So you play, you get your event, you put it out there, it's, it's going to take one turn. You use your Omen Clock and you go, push. Push it forward one spot and it goes off immediately. People look at that card and they go, this isn't... This isn't like the other cards. This really changes the game. And that's what you want to do. And so something like Parachute Base, where you can have your people suddenly fly on to the table but be damaged. Sometimes the effect of that person is so significant that you want to do that. But even then, after that, stick that person in the blood bank. Uh, That counts as one of your people for Nest of Spies. That blood bank is the one where you could sacrifice people and get water. You could sacrifice your punks. But if you had the blood bank with parachute base, you start parachuting your people in, using their cool abilities, and then they're damaged, and then you stick them in the blood bank to get water out of them. It's just, just this giant sort of web of possible combos that can exist in this game.
0: Yeah, that from a player perspective, that sounds super super interesting. To be honest, huh? so I think um, you came up with a with a with a great game there. Uh, there's one thing that I that I really. Um, uh, just realized when you were talking about it and that is um, again um with regards to the topic of of elegance so because you mentioned uh, this example with um, with the punks and um they are just uh, the, sim- the the cards in your game um but the back side of the card so you you use them as some kind of as some kind of token um and that's also some kind of secondary use, I would say that's why I, why I also mentioned that this is yeah. for me part of elegant game design because when you use the, this punk um, this normal card, i think it's a people card um, and put put it on the table as a punk it it's, it has a it's representing something that could easily have been an, another component, for example, but now since you have done that, you can reference it and for example with a card that gives it uh, back to your hand you now have this very cool effect that it is probably worth building an entire strategy around um to to, to take your more or less useless punks or less value cards like the punks um and create com- some kind of new value stronger cards by taking them into your hand and this is only possible because it was designed in an in an elegant way that's what i what i consider elegance in that yes. in that uh, sense so
1: That You reminded me there's if you're designing for component minimalism, you should think about all the ways you can use your things. Are there cards in your game or things in your game? What's on the back of them? It probably shouldn't be nothing. There might be a reason why you don't put anything on the back of your cards. But if there are cards in your game that are on the table and not in your hand, you can use the back of them as an upgraded version. I don't know what game I'm specifically talking about here, but the things in your game, what's on the other side of them? That's a really interesting opportunity to have upgradable stuff. And in my game, I had such limited space, physical space. Like in Magic, when you turn a card sideways, that shows you've used it this turn, and at the start of your turn, you turn more upright. I didn't have, because I've designed such a small design space, I don't have the luxury of wasting something like that. So being turned sideways is the most important thing in the game. It's A person or card is turned sideways is damaged. And that's a really important thing they don't just all undamage at the start of the turn the um the other thing is that so a face down card is a a punk it could have a face down card could have been a mystery person like a morph from magic but i really just needed a basic dude who just stands there and unfortunately gets you know sacrificed or used as cannon fodder that's really important for the game because um in such a small game I couldn't afford to waste these resources. And the fact that one card is in front of another card, Magic doesn't use the the relative positions of cards. So you've got your three camps, and in front of that, you've got another three spots where you can put people and another three spots in front of those. Which camps do you want to protect? Which people protect which other people? You could play the same hand with one person A protecting person B with person B protecting person A, and it will turn out differently with precisely the same cards Using the, putting the same cards on the table and junking the same cards with exactly the same camps, that would be a very different strategic scenario.
0: Yeah. And um, it's the same in, 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 in my game uh, Mindbug, because the back of the cards, there represent um, life points. So you do not have some kind of, uh, of dice or so representing your life um, or you don't have to note anything. Um, you have three life points and they are represented by the back of the cards. And when you lose a life, um, that's how you get new cards. Um, you, you put it into your hand. So it's also it's not not only that you use it as a kind of a bookkeeping tool. It's also some kind of um, comeback mechanic because you get new resources that you can then use to come back in the game. Um, that's also something that I really like to use those, those kind of um, design space that you have. Because it's not only the design space that you can put on the front of the card. Mm. You can also, as you mentioned, you can use the back of the card. You can use the position of the card. And I, that's something that I experienced. That's something that is also something you need to learn as a game designer. That's not something that comes, that's not the first thing you think about. That's, uh, that's something um, you, you come up with uh, over time and that's uh yeah that's something that that makes your game typically um a bit a bit better yes so it's been uh, a very interesting uh, interview so far we have almost recorded an hour now so um i would say we should uh should come to an end now and um i would like to ask you if there is uh, anything that you would like to um um, yeah, to, 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 to recommend to newer game designers, anything that they um, can learn from you, something that, you, that, that was maybe your hardest lesson or so during the design process, um, a pitfall or something that you fell into, um, some piece of advice that, uh, that, that would help them to, uh, yeah, to become a better game designer.
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> there's what I call a sort of a rite of passage, which is that your first game really isn't going to be published. Now, I know that's not 100% true, but it's 99.9% true and that your early time spent as a game designer, you might think you're wasting it having made all these games that aren't going to get published, but it's actually something you have to go through because you're not building a game. You're building a game designer. You're building yourself, and there's a lot of stuff that you need to learn, and it's important that you don't just go out there and make one giant monstrosity game. I've seen that so many times. You need to have a lot of different experiences with different games and learn different things. And one giant game is not the way to do it. If you're working on some gigantic game as your first game, I'm not going to say anything too bad about that game, but it's really important that maybe work on a second project, something really small. Because what will happen is that you will realize that you learned so much from that first project that even now a significantly better game designer and I think also I would tell people you need to be realistic about why you're designing games because you can either be designing for success or you can be designing for fun now if you're designing for fun you can design whatever you like and you can do whatever you like but you must face the reality that if you're designing for fun for your own challenge or whatever that your game is not going to at some point become published If you decide, on the other hand, that your number one priority is getting published, which mine was, you will still have a lot of fun and it'll be an interesting challenge, but what you're doing will need to be focused in that direction. You will need to listen to other people. You will need to design many games. You will need to take input. You will need to think about things like component limitations. You can't just make a $500 game. You need to focus on doing what other people would want and you need to get constant feedback from playtesters, and you need to listen. Because if you don't, then you won't
0: succeed. Thank you, Daniel. Great advice. That's uh, awesome. It was a great interview. Um, It was an honor to talk to you. Um, Before we we close the session, um, can you maybe tell people how to find Redlands and um, how to support uh, the game on Kickstarter?
1: Yes. So they can look for Redlands on Kickstarter. That's all they need to do. And the, the campaign's doing very well. The game company Roxley is a, a very good company and they've established a good reputation. And a lot of people have come in and said, Hey, you know, this is a new designer, but we love Roxley games and we'll support this project. It's a lot of, it's a lot of game in a small box. So if that's what you're looking for, uh, have a look for Radlands and learn more about it.
0: Cool. So here's my, my last uh, thing about it. It, uh, it does not only sound like a very, very good and interesting strategic game uh, with a lot of depth in it, it also looks incredibly nice. So if you, if you are into that uh, whole uh, post-apocalyptic stuff, just go there and look at it because the artwork is, uh, is incredible. Yeah, and roxley is known known to to have very nice kickstarter sites and um i would say this one is no no exclusion there okay then thank you daniel for being on the show and um yeah to all the listeners uh thanks for listening and um until next week keep shooting for the moon and not like a boss goodbye everyone thanks marvin Bye, daniel we'll see you later